Well, as uh, Jose mentioned, this weekend is a weekend that's going to be celebrated. Many people are going to celebrate our holiday, Independence Day, 4th of July, 1776. Declaration of Independence was signed, and we became our own sovereign nation. I truly believe under God's guidance, under God willing to, to, to have that happen. So I think it only makes sense to have a message today that focuses on, on oppression and freedom. And then you're wondering, well, why did you put a, uh, a picture of a bird there? Um, because, well, the sermon title is called A Partridge in the Mountains. Not a partridge in a pear tree, but a partridge in the mountains. And this is a message on oppression and freedom. And you're probably wondering, what's the connection between the two with oppression and freedom and a partridge? Well, Let's first look at the partridge. What makes the partridge such a very significant bird? Well, first and foremost, the appearance of a partridge is between the, uh, it's between the size of a pheasant and a quail. It's only a foot in length and can sometimes be shorter than that and weighs only a pound, sometimes less. <laughs> Those who have tasted, I've never tasted partridge, those who have tasted partridge will even say that partridge tastes like chicken. That's kind of unfair because a lot of people say many different things taste like chicken. I don't know. I'll just have to take their word for it. I've never had frog, but supposedly frog tastes like chicken. Um, but the partridge also looks like a chicken, not only tastes like a chicken, but also looks like a chicken. It has a small beak and a small head and, and it's very round as you see here in the picture until i did my research for this message for this sermon i never even saw a partridge my entire life i never knew what it looked like so uh, it was pretty interesting to see this picture of this partridge the thing that i want you to really focus on however is not so much the appearance of the partridge but the habitat of the partridge that the habitat of the partridge the partridge can be found in grasslands meadows woodlands and even in mountainous areas like uh if you were to think of the appalachian mountains where there's meadows and a variety of low bushes and shrubs the partridge its natural habitat is lush where insects can uh, can can flourish where there are worms that the partridge can, can eat. However, the partridge cannot live in a situation like this. You'll never find a partridge in a situation like this, in a mountain area called the Desert of Ziph. The Desert of Ziph, we will see this in a little while as we get into the Bible, is a very dry, deserty area. And this is significant in regard to the title, a, a partridge in the mountains, because when you hear that phrase, a partridge in the mountains, I want you to think of not a lush and green mountains, but that type of mountains that you just saw. A partridge in the mountains. It's not a phrase I came up with. If anything, this is mentioned in the Bible. 
mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 20. And this is David speaking. He's speaking to King Saul. David said, the king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Now that's a paradox. That's an oxymoron that David is saying here, especially the portion about a partridge in the mountains. Because the mountains that I showed you in the desert of Ziph, where David is currently at when he's saying this statement, where he is at at that moment, it's a harsh, it is a dry, it is a desolate area of land. There would be no partridge there whatsoever. So what is David talking about? What David is talking about is just like that partridge that has been displaced from its natural habitat because it has been oppressed, it has run, ran into a new environment for its own safety. David, of course, is using this as an analogy of his own life. This part of the story that we're seeing right now is where Saul, King Saul, the king of Israel, has come out to hunt for David. And David recognizes that Saul is like a lion, like a conquering bear, like a, like a predator beast. And David is telling Saul that, Compared to you, I am nothing but a flea. I am nothing but a partridge that has been displaced from his natural home, like a partridge in the desert of Ziph. In this story, in the story of David and Saul, we're going to see one as the oppressor, and then we're going to see the other as the one who seeks freedom from that oppression. That's, that David spent a good few years of his early 20s running from this man named Saul. Before we come to this point of the story, we have to understand the background of what's happening. Uh, we have to understand why did, why did Saul even want to, to uh, chase David? What was Saul's beef with David? What happened? Well, let's take a quick look. You can definitely write this down and study it fur further in your own time. But if we do a quick rewind, we will see that David and Saul first meet in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You might be familiar with the story. I know you are. This story is the story of David and Goliath. In this part of the chapter of 1 Samuel, in uh, chapter 17, you have Israel on one side, and you have the land or the country of Philistia on the other side. And they're about to contend. They, they have this battle that's about to wage. But Saul, who is the king of Israel, who has his men lined up, does not want to attack. He's hesitant because he's afraid of the army of Philistia. Then to make matters worse, one of the generals of Philistia steps out. His name is Goliath. 
this man who towers above other men. And he even boastfully says, who here is going to step up? You Israelites are cowards, is what he says. Saul, where are you? And what does Saul do? He just stays at the front lines, doesn't come out, doesn't take the challenge. Goliath even says, okay, we won't have our armies fight. If anything, let's just have your champion come out here and fight me. Still, no one steps up. All the while, a teenager by the name of David, 15, 16 years old is what some scholars believe, is passing through to give food provisions to his brothers. And he hears this. You remember that story? He hears this boastful cry from this heathen giant. And so, of course, David is wondering, who's going to step up? No one is stepping up. So David goes ahead and asks King Saul if he can fight the giant. Everyone's laughing at him. He's a small, puny boy. But David has experience. And he shares this with Saul. When I, tend, when I tended the flocks of sheep of my father, I protected them from bear, bears and lions. I would kill them, and I shall do the same thing to this giant. And you know the rest of the story. He picks up how many stones? Five. Five smooth stones. Not that he thought he was going to miss. He knew he was going to be accurate. For Goliath had other brothers. He just wanted to make sure that in case those brothers come charging, he was going to be ready. That's the bravery of this young man, David. So he steps out onto the field. He launches that rock within that sling. And as you know, the children's song, the giant came tumbling down. That's how they meet in the midst of battle, in the midst of a fight, I, I would actually say. Saul becomes impressed with David, and he invites David to be part of his court, uh, to be part of his, um, uh, of his army. Just a young boy who's now going to be part of the army, one of the fiercest armies of that time. Saul, for a while, loved David. He admired David until we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18. What happens there? Let's take a look at it. Exactly, he did. Jonathan, you're right on. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, when the men returned home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. Jonathan, this is what you're referring to. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. What does verse 8 say, uh, say then? It says then Saul became very angry and that the song galled him. He said to himself, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but with me, I only have thousands. 
What more can he get but the kingdom? Verse 9 is very important for us to understand. And from that time on, Saul kept the jealous eye on David. He kept the jealous eye on David. That's where it started to turn for Saul. And Saul let that jealousy fester inside his heart. If you and I ever feel temptation, it's okay to feel temptation. But at that moment, you and I should pray to the Lord to help us fight that temptation. Because what Saul, what he allowed to happen was this jealousy grew into envy. And then this envy grew into hate. And then that hate took action. And I believe that's when it's a sin. When your temptation, when you take action on your temptation, that's the sin. And that's when Saul decided to kill David. And that's number three, 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 10. Let's take a look at it. It says here, if you actually start from verse 9, the last sentence of verse 9, it tells us that while David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David escaped. And that's where we come to the part of the story. First verse that I read, that David said to Saul, you have come out for nothing. You have come for a flea. You have come to hunt a partridge in the mountains. What David is saying there is he's appealing to, to Saul, to the king of Israel, to say, I am no threat to you. But for some reason, Saul is bent and jealous of David that he wants to kill David. Let me pause here for a second. And let's talk about oppression. Because in a little while, when we go into chapters uh, 24 and 26, we're going to see the oppression that Saul puts onto David. But let's pause here for a second before we go into those two stories here. The oppression that Saul does unto David, I think, starts before the actual action that he takes to hunt down David. The oppression of David starts with the oppression of Saul oppressing himself. Did you hear that part? The oppression of David started with Saul oppressing himself. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we can be hard on ourselves. Sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves that our thinking becomes polluted. And then when we are jealous, like let's say Saul here is jealous, we let that fester, and then we start thinking of that other person as an enemy. When in reality, it's a friend. Or in Saul's case, he saw David as a son, if you were to read 1 Samuel. 
but he let it fester. And I believe the oppression that he throws upon David started with he himself oppressing himself because he didn't let God, the Holy Spirit, guide his life. So now we come to the story where David is running for his life, as we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 10. He eludes that spear. I wonder how he dodged it, like a running back with great reflexes, right? Dodged it. Fortunately, I'm glad he dodged that. And now he is seen as a fugitive by Saul, and he's running. He runs into the desert of Engedi, and that's where we come to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is the first instance that we see, the first interaction that we see with David and Saul since Saul tried to spear David onto the wall. There's two ways to see this story. You can see it as Saul oppressing or you can see it as David sparing Saul's life. <laughs> it's a matter of per perspective, right? It's a matter of how you view the story. Let's look at it from the glass half full as opposed to half empty. If we look at it from the glass half full, then this is David sparing Saul's life. What happens in, in this part of the story? In 1 Samuel chapter 24, let's start in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is, is in the desert of, uh, of En Gedi. If you can recall where the sea, uh, the Dead Sea is, if you remember, the Dead Sea is almost like this shape. And then En Gedi would be somewhere here to the uh, southwest of, of the Dead Sea. It's very dry. It's the similar mountains that I showed you of the desert of Ziph, and I'll show you a little bit where, where that story is. But, but the desert of Engedi is a very dry area. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pen along the way, and there was a cave. And Saul decided that he needed to relieve himself. He needed to use a restroom, is what the Bible says here. It's important to note that I believe it was not number one, but it's number two. And I'm not saying this just to be humorous, but I'm also saying this because it's important that you understand that number two takes a longer time. This longer time gave David an opportunity. Let's continue to read. When Saul went into this cave to relieve himself, coincidentally, David and his men were far back inside the cave. In case you're wondering how many men did David ha have, if you look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, he had 400 men. Whether they were all inside that cave or not, we don't really know. I would assume that maybe he had majority of his army elsewhere, and then he and maybe a handful of his men were inside the cave. Nonetheless, David is inside the cave, 
and he's hiding for his life. And who comes walking in? The king of Israel, Saul, the man who's hunting him. And he comes inside, Saul comes inside, and he turns his back to David, and he does his business. Then David crept up. That part is very important to understand. Because if he moved faster, then he could accidentally step on a rock that would cause a sound that would alert Saul. So he had to slowly, quietly move to Saul. Hence the reason why I believe he was doing number two, because David needed all this time to go to Saul. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's rope. If you are a person that's being oppressed, and you have an, an opportunity to end that oppression, would you take that opportunity? David had this opportunity to stop his oppressor. However, David does not kill Saul. If anything, he simply takes off a piece of his robe. Then David went out of the cave, verse 8, and he yelled out to Saul, My Lord, and here's the reason why he took only a robe and not Saul's life. My Lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on killing you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands inside the cave. He's pretty much saying I had the opportunity to kill you. Some urged me to kill you. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because why? He is the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, and I truly believe David is calling him Abba there. I believe he's calling him father because they had that relationship. He says, see, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I was this close to you. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now, please understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. What David is doing here, he is appealing to the good side of Saul in the hope that Saul will end his oppression, but most of all, not just to end his oppression, but most of all for his own well-being, Saul's own well-being, that he start to act like a king should. And it does seem like it that for a while, this touches Saul's heart. It seemed like it. And here's a reason why I say seems like it. He tells David that he was in the wrong. And he asked David that you are going to be king one day and make an oath with me to spare my family, to spare my, my lineage. David gives him this promise. And for that time, for that short while, it seems like Saul 
will end the oppression. It seems like that Saul will no longer hunt down the partridge in the mountains, David. Until we come to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Look at this, verse 1. 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. If we're looking at the glass half full, this is the second time that's, that David will spare uh, Saul's life. But verse 1 is very important. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hills of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph, the picture I showed you of those mountains, right? With his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David. Verse 1 is important for us to understand context. It doesn't tell us why the Ziphites felt like they needed to tell Saul that David was hiding there. It doesn't tell us what changed in Saul's mind that he felt like he needed to chase David again. However, what it does inform us is that it tells us that Saul's mind is so weak, it can be easily swayed by others. His mind is so weak, the slightest oppression, the slightest words from other people causes him to take drastic, dramatic action. That's Saul. On the other hand, you have David when he was in the cave, a portion that we did not read in those verses in chapter 24, is that when he was in the cave, some of his men told him, kill him. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. What did David do though? Because David is, has the attitude of the Holy Spirit, did not jump on the whim to kill Saul. If anything, he did not allow the words of others to affect his actions. So if you quickly compare and contrast David and Saul, you have one man named Saul who just takes quick action, who can be swayed by words, while David, on the other hand, rationalizes. He thinks. So the Ziphites went to Saul and told him, David is in the hill of Hakila. So if you're going to uh, take a look at the map, where Saul comes down to Desert of Ziph at this moment, and Gedi is on the east, and then Desert of Ziph is about 20 uh, to 30 miles west of, of En Gedi. Okay. So now Saul takes his army, he's marching his men into the Desert of Ziph to look for David, and David catches wind of this. He hears about it. So he sends scouts to confirm, is it true that Saul is really hunting me down again? Is it true? His scouts come back and tell him it is true. They're out in the hillside of Hakilah, and David decides to stay on the outer side. Okay, And then he has his scouts also do reconnaissance to see where Saul's tent is, because now David has a plan. And they come back to give the report that Saul's tent is in the center of the camp. He waits for nightfall, David, 
and he takes one of his soldiers with him, uh, a soldier by the name of Abishai. Abishai is how you would pronounce it in Hebrew, Abishai. He takes him with him, and at night, with the coverage of, of, of darkness, David and his soldier walks through their camp, sneaks into Saul's tent, and kills him. No, he doesn't. What does he do instead? He takes Saul's spear and a water jug that were right next to Saul. And they escape the camp. When he's at a safe distance, he yells down to Abner, which is a cousin of Saul and also a commander of, of Saul's army. He yells at him and says, hey, you weren't protecting your king. <laughs> and Abner's like, what? I'm guessing it's probably late or early. It doesn't tell us the time frame, but but it's still within the same uh, this, uh, within the same 24 hours. And David yells at Abner and says, "You did not protect your king." And Abner's yelling back, "And what are you talking about?" He says. Then David shows Abner the spear and the water jug. Here's proof. I was inside his tent. And while he's yelling out to Abner, Saul comes out of his tent, wondering, is that David's voice? Now read with me in verse, I believe, 17. It says here that Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my lord. Uh, it is my Lord King. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. However, if men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord they have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Let's break this down. What's going on here? David has had enough. He's had enough. Some have said that what David is doing is cowardly. Maybe even his own men have said that. But some scholars <laughs> believe that David had that opportunity to strike him down. And because he was anointed by God, David was anointed by God to replace King, uh, king Saul to be the new king, then if David would have killed him, it would have been perfectly okay. Some, some people believe that David was a coward in not doing it. But I don't think so. Because we heard a few minutes ago that David, when he heard Goliath yelling profanities, he fought that giant within seconds. Why did David pause in killing Saul? Why did David hold himself back? Really, what, what was the reason for that? Because I believe if we can understand his reason, that can give us some strong lessons for our time today. So let's break this down. David finally confronts Saul and asks him, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Why is that sentence so significant? 
Take a look at the bold print, the orange-red bold print. He first says, what have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? There's conflict here between the two. There's the oppressor named Saul, and there's David who seeks freedom, right? And in order, in order to seek freedom, David does something here that's very smart, something that you and I can learn from. Instead of meeting the aggressor, the oppressor, with temper, with blaming Saul, instead he puts it himself. He puts it on himself by asking, what have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? What he's doing here is that David is ex he is examining himself first. He, of course, continues and says, Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. That's David continuing to look at himself first. He's not quick to blame the king. Who is truly the guilty party? But he's taking that form of let me take let me take a look at 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 myself, not because he's a coward, but more so because he wants to see with this humble heart if he has done anything wrong towards Saul, but most of all towards God. Here's that little. And that little partridge in the mountains asking now that if I have incited the Lord somehow and you are the vengeance that he has placed upon me, I would like to ask for forgiveness. There's something I want us to give thought on today. And that thought is this. Are you spiritually mature? Because the two comparisons that we have with Saul and David is number one, I don't think Saul was spiritually mature. And it would be understanding of us to say that the reason why he was not spiritually mature is that Saul took matters always in his own hands. He never sought the advice of the Lord. However, David, on the other hand, for being in his early 20s at this point of the story, he shows spiritual maturity. And here are some qualities of spiritual maturity. And where I get this from, I get it from what we just read. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 17 through 20. Number one, traits of spiritually mature people, they're humble. They're humble at heart. And because they're humble at heart, they're able to examine themselves first. They're able to look at themselves first and say, what did I do wrong that this person is angry at me? Number two, or number three, they're not quick to blame others. They look at the situation. Did Jesus not say that before you call your brother out for the splinter in his eye, you should do what? 
Yeah, you should take out the plank that's inside your eye. First, take out the plank in your eye, then you can see the splinter that's in your brother's eye. Jesus himself encourages that you and I first examine us before we look at others. So, number three, not quick to blame others. Number four, reflects before speaking. Will my words be words of affirmation? Will they be words to uplift the person's soul? To uplift the person's uh, just well-being? Or are, are my words going to tear them down? Is it going to cause more friction? Is it going to cause more, more distress? Not just for that person, but for the, for the entire situation. The spiritually mature people will reflect before speaking. Another example about Jesus is, remember when he was bounced around between Pilate and um, Herod? Thank you, Claudia. Between Pilate and Herod? When he came to Herod, Jesus was quiet. He was quiet. Because of what Herod asked him, he mocked Jesus. What he asked Jesus was, can you give me a miracle now? Are you really the son of God? In that very mocking tone, do something for me now. Instead of retaliating, Jesus kept quiet. And I believe he was reflecting, reflecting. Number five, the spiritual mature person will appeal to the other person's heart will appeal to the heart, which con is connected to number six. They appeal to the heart because they seek Christ-like reconciliation through love. That's what we see in David's story. Is David not trying to do that with Saul? Even to this day, even to this time of the story where Saul is trying to kill him, not once, but twice. David is still patient with him. He still seeks to appeal to his heart so that they can have reconciliation. And then number seven, a trait of spiritually mature people. Number seven, they faithfully accept the situation. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the story as it continues on, there's a, a little more interaction between the two men. In verse 25, it tells us that this is how the story ends. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Did David try to work towards reconciliation? Yes. Was he hopeful for it? Yes. But he learned something about Saul that day, especially after the second time that Saul tried to kill him. David realized, actually we can read verse 20, chapter 27, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1. This is what David realized. He said, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be killed at the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Sometimes it's hard for Christians to recognize 
a very unhealthy situation. There's stories within our church, not our church here, but the church in general, the Christian church in general, that even though you're a Christian, sometimes Christian men or women will abuse their spouse, abuse their children. Even within the church setting, brother to brother, church family to church family can argue with each other. But in the most drastic situations, and I'm saying the most drastic situations, especially when it comes to physical abuse, physical harm, where someone is, is, is bruised and bleeding, even though reconciliation was, there was a, an opportunity and there was trying towards reconciliation, sometimes we need to still see the situation and accept the situation and leave. And that's okay. That's what David does here. The sad part of this story is that David, the partridge in the mountain, because of Saul's sins, he's the one that is disconnected from his home. It's a lesson for you and me, I believe, because it's a reminder of how do we treat each other? When I started the sermon and I talked about oppression and freedom, you were probably thinking oppression of a country of another country and freedom of a country that's fighting for that freedom, right? Uh, the country fighting for that freedom. No, I think sometimes oppression hits so close to home. Sometimes you might be the one that's guilty of, the of being the oppressor. That the words that you say, the actions that you have, may belittle another person. Or maybe you might be the oppressee, the one that has been bullied. And what do you do with that? There's a question I'm going to ask you, and I believe we find the answer in here. Do you believe that in spite of being oppressed, a person can still experience freedom? Can a person still experience freedom in the midst of oppression? I'm seeing some head nods saying yes. I believe, I believe yes. I believe that people, some people can experience freedom even in the midst of oppression if we follow the steps of David. If we come back to this and remember that the traits of spiritually mature people are humility, examine self first, not quick to blame others, reflects before speaking, appeals to the heart, seeks Christ-like reconciliation through love, faithful acceptance of the situation, that gives a person peace regardless of situation. Paul speaks to this. He says, let your mindset, let your attitude be like what? Jesus Christ. Be 
have an attitude like Jesus Christ, that even through challenges, through adversity, Jesus Christ was able to stay strong. He was able to experience freedom even in the midst of oppression. And did Jesus go through oppression? Oh, yes, he did. Left and right. Left and right, he experienced oppression. And so Jesus continued on that path of freedom because it was a matter of attitude. If you want that same attitude like, a, like Jesus Christ, if you want that same attitude like David, then it happens only if you have that connection with Jesus Christ. Amen. So brothers and sisters, I want you to ponder on this partridge in the mountains. A partridge in the mountains that may seem insignificant, but as we unfold it, as we looked at this story in great detail, this partridge in the mountains, David himself gives us insightful lessons this morning on how we can treat one another how we can love one another, and through the love that you give to each other, you experience freedom, the same freedom that God wants you to enjoy, the same freedom that trickles down from heaven.